This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. I am with you, and you're with me. I think we can look at it both ways. Safe to say. You know who's also with us, Elon? Dauber Hockey is presenting this episode of Keeping Carlson once again. They are your source for everything fantasy hockey. You need latest rankings for your keeper league, your one-year league. It's all there. And of course, those trade impact articles of which we just saw one between Brassard and Zabanejad. Good info there as always. We're going to get to that trade. But first, Elon, we have some business to get to before we get to our regularly scheduled programming this week, don't we? Yeah, we've got a big announcement. The patrons already know. But before we get into the content for this week's show, by the way, big show coming up. We're going to discuss that sense trade. We're going to discuss all of the free agent signings that we missed last week. Before we get to that, we want to mention that the sign-up is now open for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantrax League. Season 2 is upon us. We're finally getting going with the Cuckupful second year, and we're very excited, and we want to let you guys know you are all eligible to join the Cuckupful. Any patron of Keeping Carlson come September can join the Cuckupful, the most competitive fantasy hockey league you're going to ever play and competing against all the hardcore people who support Keeping Carlson. You know, if you join new this year, you're going to start at the bottom. You're going to be in the bottom tier. You're going to climb your way up slowly but surely and win the ultimate prize, winning the ultimate championship tier that Brian and I earned our way into last year. And when you finally do get to the top tier, you can be one of the few who can legitimately play the Drake song started from the bottom and sing every word <laughs> and mean it. Yeah, so if you have any questions, for sure you can contact us at Keeping Carlson or just check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron, our patron program. If you want to support the show right now, you can sign up for a patron for any amount of money. You could become a patron of Keeping Carlson. And then from there, you can join the Facebook group and we'll talk about the couple. Basically, it's going to be all couple talk for the next month, hammering out all of the rules, organizing everything. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hope you could join the ultimate patron fantasy league. And just a reminder, with that entry to that Ultimate League, you also get the bonus patron cast from us. You get to join the exclusive, secret, hidden Facebook group where we have fancy chat all day long, every day, even through the summer. And also you can get your questions answered thoroughly 
by Elon and I there, which is not an option for those of you asking on Twitter, although we do try to answer all those questions too. Facebook questions get a little more thought. So patron program, so many perks, especially if you get in on the ground floor, get in before September by, what do we say, Elon, September 7th, get in by then so that you can get into the cup full, you get your invite and all that other stuff. Yeah, it's going to be great. Also, one quick thing before I get to the content, the couple this year is going to be hosted on Fantrax, Fantrax Premium. So if you want to get a chance to play on the, you know, super fancy platform of Fantrax Premium, this is your chance. Okay, Brian, let's get into the content for this week's show. Let's get into our cuckupful prep here by talking about the trade that happened. No one saw this coming, and we want to talk about still, there's a lot of free agent signings from July 1st that we didn't get to last week. I thought that would be, you know, the meat for this show. But then a couple of days ago, we found out the Ottawa Senators traded Mika Zibanejad to the Rangers for Brassard, and a couple of picks went back and forth. But I thought, like, a very interesting trade, right? And on its head... As a fantasy player, I think to myself, for sure, the Sens won this trade. Like, forgetting about the picks, maybe. But Derek Brassard is a guy who's been fantasy relevant for a couple of years now. He's been a 60-point guy. Mika Zibanejad is a guy who was on the third line for the Sens for much of last year until Kyle Torres went down. Then he got up, and he had had an okay season, right? 51 points. Of course, the thing is, Derek Brassard, 28 years old. Mika Zibanejad, only 23. And he's surging, right? He had his career-high 51 points last season. So I guess the question for you, Brian, I don't really want to talk so much about who won the trade because that's not really the focus of this podcast. But maybe if we could focus on the Sens first and Derek Broussard, is this good for his fantasy value? Like, he's not going to be able to play with Rick Nash or whoever he, you know, he got Zuccarello, whoever was playing on the Rangers, but he could get some good line mates. Maybe Hoffman, maybe Stone. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think it's a step down for Broussard at all. You might think that moving from the Rangers to the Senators is a bit of a negative thing, but I actually think that the top six in Ottawa could be at least as deep as the one in New York, and that is to Broussard's benefit. There's also an opportunity for him. Well, we'll see if he ends up being first-line center or second-line center. I feel like the Sens are going to roll with essentially two, you know, 1A and 1B line. But speaking specifically about Broussard, he's averaged just about 60 points over the last two seasons, career high. He had never hit that mark until two seasons ago. And the good news for Sens fans and Broussard owners or potential drafters is that neither of those seasons are wholly attributable to luck. I I mean, sure, we can see in each campaign where Broussard was able to make some gains two years ago, 18 of his 29 assists at even strength were secondary assists. In other words, they could have been more or less random. That's a big chunk, almost two-thirds of his total assists. But then last year, only four of his even strength assists were secondary. He had 15 total assists, four of them were secondary. So you might say he put in his his fair work to get them, even if he did have a little help, with a higher than average shooting percentage in putting some pucks in the net. Mind you, last year he was able to touch 60 points or get close to it, all while his linemate Rick Nash struggled mightily. So he's had good consistency over his last 120 games played, has weathered a couple storms, and you know, it's not a terrible surprise that he's been able to do that because he's been a talented player in the NHL for a while, usually with an expectation of 55 to 60 points, and he's just played the peak production years of his career. Now, if you listen closely, you heard me say I just he just played those peak productive years, which is what you need to remember as he moves to Ottawa. I don't expect his numbers to take off any further with Ottawa as they were with New York. You know, he's not getting any younger, for starters, and there's no Rick Nash to help cash in some apples, but that doesn't mean that his numbers can't stay about the same for another year or two. Like I was saying off the top, Ottawa's top six, 
is pretty decent. They have guys like Bobby Ryan, Mark Stone, hopefully Mike Hoffman available as wingers, and he's also certain to figure prominently on the power play in Ottawa, which has had its share of struggles over the last little while, and Broussard is a good guy to come in and help with those. He doesn't get a lot of credit for what he does on the power play, but he's essentially a top 30 guy in the NHL in power play scoring, and had been trusted as the second most used forward last year in New York, just a few minutes behind his line mate, Matt Zuccarello. So where do I see Broussard next year? About the same where he's been the last couple years. And then, of course, you can expect diminishing returns as the years go on. But I wouldn't expect him to suddenly find another gear that lets him crack 60 points and have another huge career breakthrough. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because when you look at the Sens center situation, you have Kyle Turris, who we don't really know about. But I assume if he's healthy, he's going to be in the top six. He was great last year before he got injured. And then after that, you know, he was horrible when he came back from injury, but he was clearly still injured. But then you have J.P. Pajot, who at the end of the year had a really awesome run playing with Mark Stone and Zach Smith. And a lot of people might have thought that Pajot would be a good draft pick next year, though, of course, there would have been Zibanejad there in his way. But I sort of thought as if like Pajot and Zibanejad would fight for for that second line spot. I assume now, Broussard, they didn't bring him in to be a third line center. So that means Mark Stone is probably not going to be playing with Peugeot anymore. And does that mean that Peugeot's value just goes way down and now you don't draft him? I'm surprised at how much credit you're giving Jean-Gabriel Peugeot. I know he had a bit of a run last year, but I don't think he made any serious threat to be considered a forever top six guy in Ottawa. I think he's a top nine guy. And yeah, he can step in on the second line and do duty here and there. But that's not his job. That's not what he's supposed to do in Ottawa. And Zibanejad, I, like, would you have considered at any point for Peugeot to be ahead of Zibanejad on the depth chart? Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think that Peugeot had that good run at the end, and he and Mark Stone had that great run together. Like, it seemed like they had some chemistry, so I thought maybe they would play together. But obviously, you weren't anyways going to be drafting Peugeot, and now obviously you definitely won't be. No, I wasn't going to, and I'm still not going to. I mean, you kept saying he had that good run, and you're right. He had that good run. He also had a good run in the playoffs a few years ago in a series against Montreal. But, you know, I'm not going to make any big decisions based on that. He's still undraftable to me. Mika Zibanejad, on the other hand, has always been a guy who we're waiting to see break out. He was the sixth overall pick back in 2011. After Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Gabriel Landeskog, he's actually got more NHL experience under his belt than anybody else drafted that year. He also recently set a career high. You mentioned off the top, Elon, 51 points last year, which was very encouraging as a sense fantasy. And interestingly, he's moving into a situation where he's going to really get to be the second line center. In Ottawa, it was always sort of assumed, but I feel like with New York, it's even more concrete considering the depth chart. But he's got Hayes and Kreider to play with instead of the other Ottawa wingers I mentioned before. And Hayes and Kreider can definitely hold their own. There's no doubt about it. I just don't know that they're the right kind of match for Mika Zibanejad. So that's one thing to consider when he's moving to New York. He might see a few more minutes or about as many, but I'm not sure exactly how that line comes together. Maybe things will mix up, though. We saw Broussard playing with Nash. Maybe Zibanejad gets some time there. One interesting thing to note about Zibanejad is I mentioned Broussard and his power play contributions in New York and think, well, okay, well, maybe Zibanejad's going to step into those. I actually think that he's probably not first in line to step in to Broussard's minutes. And I'm not making a pun at all when I say that Stepan is, I think, the one who's going to get to step into those minutes, especially because if you look at Zibanejad's work on the power play over the last couple of years, He's been very, very inefficient with the men advantage. Now, Ottawa's power play has not been great, as I already said, 
but I don't know that that's why Zibanejad has suffered. He actually figures in about the bottom third of the NHL in regular, amongst regular forwards who are seeing a plenty of power play time. And I don't know that without figuring that out, he can touch 60 points the same way Broussard did in essentially the same position on the depth chart. So on the whole, I'd say probably 50 is a safe bet. I can expect Zibanejad to at least repeat what he was able to do last year, but I still think he has 55-point upside if he can figure out how to be successful on the power play. Yeah, well, so it's interesting. Like, the Rangers are a team, when you look at their depth chart, maybe Zibanejad's good, but, you know, just he doesn't seem to have that star power that Brassard has, at least for next year. And then you see, like, this doesn't look like such a strong team. Like, they've lost... Yandel. Now they've lost Broussard and replaced him with Zibanejad. And you see, like, Stepan, Nash, Kreider, like you say. Like, who really else is there? Zuccarello, of course. Like, they have okay players, but I wonder if this is going to hurt Henrik Lundqvist, who's already a guy that was struggling at the end of last year, and the Rangers don't seem to be getting much better. They lose it. Losing Keith Yandel is also a big deal. And on the other side, I kind of wonder, are the Sens, like, trying to be competitive? Like, the Sens are the type of team that you would think should be kind of tanking a little bit. You know, it just seemed like they're not a team on the rise. They could use some more depth. They could use some good draft picks or trade their remaining veterans for some good young stars. But they're going the other way, right? They got Dianne Phaneuf last year, and now they're picking up Brassard. It looks like they're trying to be competitive and make the playoffs next year. So that might be good for Craig Anderson. Maybe that means they're going to make maybe another move at the trade deadline or something to try to give them that extra push. And Craig Anderson's a decent goalie if he could just get some support. So, you know, those are some maybe other things that can be effects of this trade. Like, maybe this is bad for Lundqvist and good for Anderson. Obviously, I'd still want Lundqvist higher, but relatively speaking. Well, if the Rangers do make the playoffs, it will be on the backs of Henrik Lundqvist, who is going to have to work even harder this year than usual. We know that he's had to make up for a lot of defensive ineptitude uh, over the last few years. And that he's going to have to... I don't know that this Elon makes him any worse off than before. I think he's probably still going to be the same guy with Broussard or Zabandajad. He's basically got a weak decor and his body to fight against. I, I don't know that there's a significant loss in goals scored by the Rangers with Broussard moving out. For Anderson, on the other hand, I think it helps to have Broussard in the fold to score a few more goals. Hopefully help out on the power play, make that more efficient... I don't see a huge bump to him either, though. I don't see this changing either team's fortune significantly this year or next. I feel like it might have more of an effect in a few years when Broussard is losing a step or two and is still the team's second-line center or first-line center, trying to match up against top opponents or Zabanejad is able to progress any further in his development. You asked Elon where this puts the two teams. I think for Ottawa, it's a really funny trade in that it moves them closer to the playoffs, but further away from a Stanley Cup. Yeah, that makes sense, because they'll need a couple of years to develop, and by then Broussard won't be as effective, and also the draft pick. I don't know, the thing with Lundqvist, I'm not only talking about this trade, I'm also talking about them trading Yandel. I just, and also, Lundqvist really wasn't great at the end of last season. Like, his numbers overall were good, but he had a really weak end to the year. So I don't know, I don't know if I'm rushing to draft Henrik Lundqvist right now as, like, a top-tier goalie like we used to. Obviously, if he falls far enough in my draft, I would take him, but I don't know if the Rangers are going to get me that many wins. Maybe he's a really good goalie now on, like, not such a great team. They lose Keith Yandel. Now they lose Broussard. I don't know. And Craig Anderson, also, I just kind of feel like the Sens are going to try to push for the playoffs this year, and that's got to be good for their number one goalie. But okay, 
Let's move on now. We have all of those other signings that happened on July 1st that we didn't get to a couple of weeks ago, of course, because it was such a busy day. So I'm going to run through the remaining signings that I think have some fantasy impact. And then in the chat room, let me know if you think I'm missing any. But I think by the end of this, we'll have discussed every free agent signing that I think is fantasy relevant for your drafts. I want to start in Florida with the signing of James Reimer. Like a very interesting move, right? Because they have Roberto Luongo, who was a pretty good goalie for most of the year last year. He stumbled a bit at times, but, you know, we've already ranked him very high in our patron cupful rankings that we've been doing every day. Luongo was ranked a long time ago as a really good goalie on a really good team, and we thought that he would be solid. Now this really hurts Luongo's fantasy value, I would think, and I'm really curious what the Panthers are doing making this signing. Is the plan to just have a tandem, or are they thinking that maybe Luongo's going to be on his way out, and they have to obviously have this whole protecting only one goalie come expansion next summer? So I think it's very interesting. And one other thing to keep in mind before you give your take, Brian, Luongo's injured right now. So if people aren't aware, the word is he's probably going to miss the opening game of the season. We don't know exactly how long he'll be out. But the sense is that he is not going to be healthy in time to start the year. It's a hip injury. So right away to start the year, James Reimer is going to be a starting goalie, which means he has the opportunity to steal the job or at least establish himself as a decent goalie. So I guess the question to you is, first of all, how good is James Reimer compared to Luongo? And then also, how do you sense the situation in general? James Reimer is not quite as good as Roberto Luongo. If you look at his even strength save percentage over the last few years, which is a pretty steady way to assess goalie performance, you'll find that he's smack dab in the middle of the league in even strength save percentage. As I said, over the last few years, he's near goalies like Semyon Varlamov, Marc-Andre Fleury, Sergei Bobrovsky, all guys who have pretty good reputations in fantasy, or at least have had pretty good reputations for a little while. Bobrovsky, I'm not sure, falls in that group anymore. But Reimer is capable of being a number one goalie, and I think the Panthers were smart to reach out and grab him. It makes sense to have him start the season. You don't want to start the season on a two-month, 500... You know, the Panthers want to win the Stanley Cup. I think it's clear from all the moves they're making, they are very serious about contending now. They're not ready to wait another year, and getting off on the wrong foot at the start of the year would be a bad move. I'm not sure that James Reimer can be expected to steal the number one job. I am a little more confident that he's going to be used fairly frequently through the year, though, to rest Luongo. And I feel like I've made this point several times. Roberto Luongo got bad towards the end of last season. He really, really limped to the finish, both in the regular season and in the playoffs. And he's getting older, so I imagine having a very capable go-to option as a backup to give him a night off without letting their chances of winning or contending in the standings fall at all with James Reimer is probably what their move is. And also, Elon, you alluded to maybe they let Luongo go in the expansion draft next year. You know, his $5.3 million cap hit would probably be a pretty good thing to let go as well, especially if James Reimer proves that he can be a number one goalie for the Panthers. I think he can do it. I'm not sure what the sense would be in keeping both of them. And Elon, I feel like that's where this is headed. Both of them obviously are going to be tough to draft next year because Luongo first of all he's injured and so you never want to draft an injured guy though we have said before on the podcast that that's a sneaky way to get a good player his value drops in the draft because he's injured and then he helps you you know he comes back in a month helps you in a weekly league by the time you get to the fantasy hockey playoffs you've got this number one goalie that you were able to draft late on the other hand now he does have some competition even if they're like 60 40 
hurts both of their draft value. You wanted to talk so much about Montoya. He goes to Montreal. I don't know how fantasy relevant this is. Obviously, they have Carey Price, but he was injured for a lot of last year. Who knows how well he'll hold up? Hopefully for him and for the Habs and for all of his owners, he's going to be able to play the you know crazy number of games that he's normally able to do. But if not, do we assume that Mike Condon is not going to be able to beat Al Montoya and Montoya will be the backup and someone who could potentially have value if Price gets injured? For Al Montoya, I still remember his insane World Junior Championship performance back in 2004. I remember listening it to my Walkman or Discman radio. He won all six of his games. He let up only eight goals total and he had a 944 save percentage leading the U.S. to gold. And I was very afraid of him being the guy who is going to dominate international tournaments for years to come and cause Team Canada specifically a lot of problems. That terror eased as soon as the next year's World Junior Championship where he put up a 904 save percentage instead and a 500 record on the way to not meddling at all with that year's Team USA. And I bring this up because I feel like it's more or less the story of Alma Antoya. He's been one of the better backups in the league over the last three, four years, although consistency has really dogged him for the better part of his career. He's been an above-average backup for two of his last three seasons. That's positive, but two of his last four seasons have also been pretty weak. So keep in mind, he's also not this young prospect anymore. He's in his early 30s. He's been an NHL backup now for six years. I don't know that he's going anywhere beyond that. I know you're question, Elon, is he definitely the backup instead of Mike Condon? All the things I'm saying point to yes. I think he presents a much better option for a number one goalie or a backup goalie in Montreal should Carey Price get injured or need a rest. Yeah, though, as we saw from Condon last year, I don't know if you want the goalie on Montreal if Carey Price is injured. So I don't know, maybe it's not even worth talking so much about Montoya. Obviously, you're not going to draft him next year unless you're in like a super, super deep league and a backup goalie on Montreal has value to you. Another person affected, I did mention that Brian Campbell, since we're talking about Florida, let's just finish up with the Panthers. They lose Brian Campbell to free agency to the Chicago Blackhawks. They signed Jason Demers. Just a quick take on the fantasy impact of both of those signings. I'd imagine for Demers, can't be very good because he went from Dallas where he had at least somewhat of a fantasy relevant role. I I believe he got some time on the second power play. He had around a 30-point pace. But... Now he goes to Florida where they already have now Ekblad and Yandel. If they go four forwards on each power play, I don't really see any room for Demers to get power play time. So I say he loses all fantasy relevance. That's my opinion anyways. I'd be curious to know if you see it differently. And Brian Campbell, eh, he already hasn't been too fantasy relevant for a couple of years now anyway. So I don't imagine you'd be wanting to draft him either. Did Jason DeBear really have any fantasy relevance before this? I mean, he had 23 points in 62 games last year, so surely he could have gotten a little closer to 30 if he played the full season. 25 points the year before. His career high was 34 points the year before that, when he had a somewhat prominent role on San Jose's power play. He had nine special teams points. That helps carry him there. But no, he is not somebody who has any fantasy value if you're looking for scoring. The interesting part of this movement for me is that Campbell's fantasy value I don't think changes a whole lot going to Chicago. I'm going to start with him, even though I know you wanted to focus on the Florida effect. For anybody who's thinking, oh, he's going to go to Chicago, where he's able to put up huge points and it just wasn't clicking for him in Florida, you know, it's going to have been four years since he last put up more than 12 power play points in a season. I don't expect he sees any more opportunity next year than he did this year. And this year, he had just eight power play points, so not a huge factor even when he did get the time. Where I think his impact is most going to be felt is back in Florida 
on Aaron Ekblad at even strength. Ekblad saw an 11% swing in his possession stats with and without Campbell last year. So while he was on the ice with Campbell, he controlled the play, or the Panthers controlled play, for 57% of all shot attempts. And when Ekblad was on the ice without Campbell, 46% of all shot attempts went against the Panthers. So that number also encompasses a legitimate drop in shot attempts for Ekblad when he was with, say, Kulikov instead of Campbell. So the point I'm trying to make here is that Campbell is really good at helping drive and control play. He's not there to do that anymore for Ekblad, which means Ekblad is going to have to work a bit harder this year to get his shot attempts off. Yeah. So, okay. In the end, maybe not much of an effect on Demers and Campbell. You're saying maybe it'll hurt Ekblad, but obviously Ekblad is still developing as a elite defenseman in the NHL. So hopefully he'll be able to just like make up for the fact that he's losing Campbell. And we'll see. Maybe if he's playing with the Andal, that could also be very good. So we'll have to see what happens there. That's Florida. Let's talk about, very quickly, our sponsor, SeatGeek. This is the best site to go to if you're looking for tickets to any sporting event or concert. They're a sponsor of Keeping Carlson, and they're great because you don't have to search around because they aggregate all the prices in one place, and they show you the final price. What's it going to be? You don't have to wait till checkout to see what the price is going to be because they show you what the final price is going to be. No hidden fees. Check it out, SeatGeek. And Brian, don't they have a special offer to listeners of Keeping Carlson? They do. If you are a listener of Keeping Carlson, you can download the app, go into your profile, enter the promo code KEEPING, K-E-E-P-I-N-G, and SeatGeek will give you a $20 rebate on your first ticket purchase with them. Check it out, SeatGeek.com, or head on over to the App Store or the Android Store, whatever you download apps with, and uh, search SeatGeek. It's pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Okay, let's move on. We still have so many more signings to go through. So we got through Florida. Let's go to Minnesota. We talked last episode about Thomas Vanek, who left the team and went to Detroit, but we didn't talk about who they signed, which is Eric Stahl. And it's a very interesting signing, I think, because on one hand, Eric Stahl was an all-star in the NHL. He's a guy who's been over a point per game for many, many seasons. But now, you know, last year, he was pretty bad and like he's actually been on the downslide for a while like he had 61 points in 2013 not bad then the season after that 54 points then last year 39 points in 83 games so just a brutal brutal non-fantasy relevant season even though he was like on the top line and top power play on carolina while he was there before he moved to the rangers couldn't do anything for the rangers who got knocked out easily in the first round now he goes to minnesota And, you know, it kind of looks like a good situation for him. According to Roto World, I saw just recently they posted that the newly signed Eric Stahl is expected to center a line featuring Zach Parise. So we maybe would have thought that Stahl would have been on the wing, like he was a little bit in Carolina, but it looks like he's going to center. And also they're thinking that they're going to shift Mikhail Granlin to the left wing on a line with Miko Koivu. And Charlie Coyle is slated to be the third member of the Stahl unit, while Jason Pomaville will compete with the Koivu line, which seems like a decent top six overall. This is just what I'm reading from the Roto World post, which was from the Minnesota. Soda Tribune article. But, you know, so if you've got Eric Stahl with Parise and Charlie Coyle, who had a really nice surge last year, maybe Eric Stahl could bounce back to being fantasy relevant. He's got to be able to do better than 39 points, right, Brian? I think so. I think so. I really like this spot, this landing spot for Eric Stahl. It's interesting to think, Elon, that he's been an all-star four times. Actually, it's not that interesting to think. It was a while ago. That's why we're not expecting 60 points from him again this year, even though I do like 
the fact that he's in Minnesota. This is a place where he's definitely not going to be the number one guy, but he's still going to have good options on his wings thanks to a very well-rounded and balanced top six in Minnesota. I imagine he's also not going to be seeing other teams' best players as often as he did in Carolina, and I expect Minnesota to let him do his thing as an oftentimes second-line center, unlike the situation he had when the Rangers traded for him and barely used him. Mind you, a lot of people are concerned that Stahl could be the third center on the depth chart, but I have seen that Minnesota intends to move Granlin to the wing for starters, so hopefully that's a situation that works for Granlin and for Stahl so that he can start putting up points again. Again, I'm not expecting 60 from him. 50 would be nice. Yeah, and you know what, Minnesota, you say they have a pretty decent top six. I actually think they have a pretty deep top nine. Like, if you take a look, if they go with Parise, Stahl, and Coyle, that's line one. Then if they go with Koivu, Granlin, and Pominville for line two, then you could put up a pretty nice third line with Zucker, Haula, and Nino Niederreiter, maybe, for line three. So they do have the potential to ice a pretty decent team. They still have Ryan Suter on defense. They still have Devin Dubnik in net. This could be, you know, a team that maybe people... People were excited about going into last season, especially after Dubnik's amazing run. And last year, he was a lot more average. He had a 918 save percentage. Definitely not horrible, but not, you know, blowing anybody away. I wonder if Dubnik might end up being a good sleeper pick for next year. I know maybe I'm, like, reaching the same thing that I did with the uh, the Sens getting Broussard. And I was saying how maybe that will help Anderson. So let me know if you think I'm just, like, spending too much time thinking about the goalies in all of this. But I just think that Minnesota looks like the kind of team that could be decent. And I think that Dubnik is a forgotten guy after having that regular season last year, but I think that he could actually end up being a pretty decent number one goalie for your fantasy team. I'm going to interject, Elon. I don't think that Dubnik has been forgotten. I think everybody realizes that Devin Dubnik is not a 9.29 goalie day in, day out in the NHL. Yeah, last year he had a 9.18 save percentage, a smidge above league average, and I imagine that's about where we're going to find him. I don't think that's any reason to have forgotten about him. I think a lot of people, if they're valuing him accurately, look at him as a pretty good goalie on a pretty good team. Although remember, Minnesota did sneak into the playoffs last season, was totally outclassed against Dallas in the first round. They've still got some work to do, but I do think Eric Stahl is a step in the right direction. It makes that top six, or Elon, in your opinion, top nine, that much more well-rounded. Yeah, it's interesting. So you say 50 points for Eric Stahl. We had that debate a couple of weeks ago on the podcast where I thought that Parise was going to be like above 65 points. You said only uh, less than 65 points. So there was some sort of weird part where you were concerned about whether he'll get injured or not. And then we couldn't define the terms of the bet of whether we were going to count total points or points, you know, accounting for injury. But anyway, I think Parise could still be good. And, and But, you know, obviously we've discussed a lot about how players in Minnesota don't tend to get a lot of points. And if Parise's 65 to maybe 70 overall points is like this high ceiling of what we can expect from someone in Minnesota, I think 50 points for Eric Stahl is pretty reasonable, especially since there is a lot of competition. He he has no guarantee of even playing with Parise all season. Yeah, 55 is possible. It would be a success for him. You know, last year, he struggled so much on the power play. If he sees some time in Minnesota and able to get some more time and success there, that'll help. One of the reasons he only had 39 points last year is because when he was on the ice on the power play, he saw more than 200 power play minutes. 83 other forwards in the league saw 200 minutes or more on the power play last year. They all scored more power play points than Eric Stahl did. And I don't know if that's something that's really a repeatable thing for Eric Stahl. His personal shooting percentage was very low. He was shooting just like 3.5% 
on the power play. There are another few things that could bounce back a little bit in Stahl's favor. I think what I'm trying to say is that he's not a 40-point guy. I don't expect him to totally regress as suddenly as he did. He's still, like, he's not like 35 yet or anything. He's still about 31 years old, and I think he can reach 50. 55 would be very good. I also wouldn't be terribly surprised if he falls between 45 and 50. Okay, so let's move on to another older player who we need to figure out if he's going to be able to bounce back to what he's done before or if he's going to continue to regress. Let's talk about David Backus, who signed with Boston. Here's a guy who, you know, maybe doesn't have the same profile as Eric Stahl, but if you look at his numbers over the past few seasons, like three seasons ago, he had 57 points in 74 games. That's an over 60-point pace. The year after that, 58 points. So he's like Derek Broussard territory, you know, someone who was putting up a 60-point pace in St. Louis. Then last year, it didn't go so well. He only had 45 points in 75 games. A lot of that, I think, had to do with it. At times, he was playing on the third line. It was like Lettera and Stasny were centering the top two lines, or even when Lettera was injured, I remember there was someone else ahead of Bacchus on the depth chart. It was very interesting how St. Louis was using him, but clearly he lost a lot of fantasy value. Now he goes to Boston. Boston doesn't seem too concerned. They signed him to a long-year deal, and I assume... I mean, it's hard, because he signed for a decent amount of money, but at the same time, Boston has Krejci and Bergeron as centers. So, does someone move to the wing? Like, I'm just trying to figure out how Bacchus can be a prominent member of the Bruins' top six and someone worth considering drafting in your upcoming draft. Well, Elon, if I can jog your memory for a moment, did you think he was considerably worth drafting, you know, in the first 100 forwards last year, or even 150? I mean, I would have potentially projected him as someone who could get between 55 and 60 points, which is what he had been doing for the previous two seasons. Okay, fair enough. I don't know that you can expect any more from him in his new role in Boston. I don't think his fantasy value goes up at all, but I do think he's definitely going to play in the top six. Some people are asking, you know, is he going to play on the third line? And for $6 million, I don't think he's going to be playing on the third line. That's like Dave Boland territory. I expect him to move over to the wing. If I had to guess, I figure he's supposed to be the defensively responsible guy on, say, the second line for David Krejci and whoever the left winger might be on that line because there's a hole from Erickson's departure. The reason I think that is because Bergeron can handle his business on the first line. He can take care of controlling play and playing defensively well. I don't know what adding Bacchus really does to that situation since Bacchus doesn't contribute a whole lot of offense either. So if Boston really is sincere about having Bacchus come to the team to help them play a defensively responsible game, then they're going to put him on his own line and have him anchor that one defensively. Here's the thing, though. David Bacchus has actually been relatively worse than other Blues forwards at driving play and being defensively responsible for the last couple years. Now, a few Bacchus supporters, or the many Bacchus supporters, I suppose, would tell me that he started shifts significantly more often in the defensive zone or neutral zones than his teammates, which is true. And to be honest, he still came pretty close to the rest of his teammates in his Corsi last year or his shot attempts percentage. But it's still a bit of a red flag to me. And I wonder that like, if he falters in being defensively capable, the cynic in me thinks that maybe Boston plays him with Bergeron to mask that he's falling off as a defensive player, and it helps their investment look better next year. I don't think Bacchus' point totals go up at all for the next season. He's getting older. I think last year he even saw his share of luck. He went on a couple runs that we weren't used to seeing him go on, was able to build his name up very well, but I don't expect it to be something that's sustainable. Hmm. Okay, well, 
You know, this is a tough one for me. He had 45 points last year, so just kind of like not really fantasy relevant. Maybe like right on the edges of it sometimes being fantasy relevant, but he was on the top power play on St. Louis. Maybe he didn't do that well there, as we can see from his overall point totals, but he is someone who could potentially be on the top power play. Ben here in the chat have we mentioned this is a live show, by the way? I'm not sure if we did, for those of you listening. But yes, this has been a live show, and we have a chat room here. And, and Ben mentioned that Daily Faceoff currently has Bacchus on the right wing of the top line, playing with Bergeron. Like, Brian, you were saying that maybe that could happen if they want to mask his defensive inabilities. I'm not sure where Daily Faceoff got this. I'm sure from some tweet from some beat writer at some point. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, what they've got there is like Marchand, Bergeron, and Bacchus. That would be a pretty good line. And even if you played with Krejci and Pasternak somehow... That would also be good. So if you think that he's going to be in the top six, I imagine he should be able to beat 45 points. Maybe someone to look at near the end of your draft if he's still available. In my opinion, if you're looking for someone who could get you 50 points, especially because he should be able to get on the top power play. Like Ryan Spooner was on the top power play for a lot of last year, and I'd assume if they're spending all this money on Bacchus, and he's someone who has a lot of experience on the top power play, at least he'll get a shot there. That's what I think. So I don't know, maybe like 50 points, but definitely I agree with you, Brian, that I wouldn't be expecting him to go back to the 60-point pace that he had a couple of years ago. Though... Maybe it's possible. Yeah, he's done that several times in his career. He's been able to be like a 55, 60-point guy for a while, and he fell off terribly last year. Maybe I was overly harsh in my just-now assessment of him. His shooting percentage last year was really low. His on-ice shooting percentage last year was really low. Those are the reasons for his declines in in his even-strength point scoring. Uh, There's reason to think that maybe he could hit 55 but, you know, if you're asking me, we just talked about Eric Staller, David Backus. I think that would be a really interesting conversation. I have a little more faith in Eric Stahl's offensive capabilities at this point in his career than I do David Backus's. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I definitely like Eric Stahl playing with Zach Parise, but I think if I had to pick one right now, I think I would actually take Bacchus. But I could see it definitely going either way. You know, one thing we didn't discuss with Boston, last week we talked about Louis Erickson leaving Boston and going to Vancouver, but we didn't really discuss the fantasy impact of how this affects the other players on Boston who lose Erickson as a potential linemate or maybe who get to step into the top six. Of course, maybe Bacchus ends up taking Erickson's spot if he's going to play on the wing, so maybe there's no big deal here. I mean, you see like maybe Krejci pass. Pasternak and Spooner and then Bergeron, Bacchus and Marshawn. Maybe that's the top six. But then where does that put Matt Bolesky? Where does that put, you know, Jimmy Hayes? They also signed Riley Nash, who I assume is going to be on the third line. Do you see any people that I'm not thinking of that could be winners or losers or people that might be affected by all this movement that Boston has done? No, the only guy listed on their depth chart as a left winger right now is Matt Bolesky, who reminds us that Boston going big on Bacchus in free agency this year wasn't terribly surprising. And also that maybe they're not quite sure what they're doing because that bet on Bolesky did not quite work out as planned, or at least it hasn't so far. I'm going to leave the door open, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to work out the way they hoped, the same way that this Bacchus signing isn't going to work out the way they hoped. But back to your question, Elon, they have two guys who play center and right wing who both shoot left. David Pasternak shoots left. Ryan Spooner shoots left. So maybe one of those guys can step in on that left-hand side. I think either one would make more sense than Matt Bolesky, except Pasternak is already kind of slotted in on the right side, or he could be. Uh, So I think maybe it would be a good way to get Ryan Spooner some more ice time. Then again, he does a very fine job of taking care of that third line role in Boston. I don't know, Brad, I think you might be missing someone here. Brad Marchand, the guy who scored 37 goals last year and had 61 points. He, he's a left winger, or at least he is in fantasy. I've definitely played him on my left wing before. So I feel like he's someone who's probably, I'd imagine, the top line left winger right now on Boston. The implicit 
suggestion in my comments was that he was taken care of. He is the left wing in Boston, but perhaps the only left wing in Boston right now. And do we think, by the way, just really quickly, we were actually just talking about him on the patron-only Facebook group about how highly should Marshawn be ranked for next year. 37 goals. Nothing to sneeze about. That was definitely a career high for him. His career high before that was 28 goals. So a huge jump up to 27. And that 28 goals was in 2011. Also, 61 points was a career high. Do we think that Brad Marchand could be depended on now as a around 35 goal scorer and 60 point getter? Well, something very interesting happened last year to get him to those 37 goals. You'd think normally uh, shooting percentage must have shot up like nobody's business or his power play production really was crazy. I mean, he had four more goals on the power play, but only eight points total with the man advantage. So that wasn't it. And it also wasn't his shooting percentage, which was very much in line with his career numbers. It was actually the fact that he shot so much more than he ever has in his career. His previous career high was 180 shots on goal, and he picked that up in 2014-15. Last year, 250 shots on goal, and that may be directly attributed to the departure of Milan Lucic. Yeah. So definitely if Marshawn is, like you say, the de facto number one center and if he or left winger, and if he can keep taking this many shots, that's great for him for fantasy because obviously shots is a category in most leagues. So he was a really valuable guy last year. Brian, I believe we owned him at one point in our joint league that we did, and then we dropped him like early on. I don't even remember the reason, but that was really dumb. But we won the league. So what did it matter? But yeah, he's someone that you definitely don't want to forget about on draft day. I assume you want Marshawn over Bacchus. Do you even have to ask? Okay, so let's move on then. Next signing, let's talk about Michael Bodker, who went to the Sharks. And this is a guy who, I don't know, his like stock really rose at the perfect time for Arizona to be able to get a nice return for him because he wasn't really like that notable of a player, at least in fantasy. Like in 2014, he had 28 points in 45 games and he got injured, but that's, you know, like basically a 50 point pace. Then last year, you know what? He ended up with only 51 points overall on the season, but he had a really strong run on Arizona. People were really excited about him going to Colorado and he got onto a decent line on Colorado. I remember, and people were really jumping to grab him as a free agent. Didn't really work out so well. He had 12 points in 18 18- games in Colorado. Yeah, so somewhat replaceable fantasy player. Like, not irrelevant, but nothing, like, too exciting to justify everyone really jumping at him. Now he goes to San Jose, and this is, like, an interesting situation, because we were excited about his potential line mates in Colorado. You have to be excited about his potential line mates in San Jose. I'm really interested to see what they're going to do now, because they obviously have the the Joes on the top line, and that's the line that you want to get on as the third wheel. You know, a guy like Couture then is on the second line, and but with the Joes last year, it was Thomas Hurdle who really cemented himself on that line and did really well there, so I'd be surprised to see them broken up, and then that would mean that Couture and Bodker and maybe Joel Ward or Patrick Marlowe get on the second line, which is still good. And we talked about in the playoffs how well Couture did. I'd imagine they signed Bodker to be on the one of the top two lines. This has to be good for him, right? He's either going to play with Couture or who we think is going to continue to be really good like he was in the playoffs last year, or he's going to be on the top line with the Joes. Either way, good news for Bodker? Or do we think his 51 points last year, which I believe was his career high, is that sort of what we should expect from him moving forward? Okay, so I think there are two different parts to that question you just asked. First, I'm going to go on the depth chart bit that you were just going on about. It's interesting that in San Jose, I can probably read the top four left wingers and the top four right wingers, and all of them will have spent some time on the top 
two lines in San Jose last season to the point that we probably mentioned them at some point or another. You've got Hurdle on the left side, followed by Bodker, Marlowe, Nieto, Melker Carlson is slotted in as a left winger, although I think he can move around a little bit. On the right side, Pavelski, Ward, Wingles, Donskoy, Timo Meyer is someone who's supposed to develop and come up at some point. So it's hard to say for sure that anybody is a guaranteed a spot in the top six in San Jose, especially I think the left side is quite crowded. Aside from Hurdle, uh, Bodker has Marlowe to contend with, who might not yet be totally ready to be in a third-line role in the eyes of his coach. In my eyes, I think Marlowe is probably not a top-six forward anymore. As for Bodker's point totals, you know, his hat-tricks and outbursts last year were very exciting, but you may remember that I constantly reacted very coolly to them, and for good reason. I, I felt a little vindicated after, you know, I did miss out on some points from him from October to December last year. He scored 30 points in his first 37 games, an incredible start to the season. Then he followed that up with just 21 points in his last 43 games played, including those good times in Colorado. He had less than half a point per game pace in that time, and that half point per game pace, or just under that, is actually quite in line with his productivity over the course of his eight-year career. So I'm not sure I'm about to expect significantly more than a half point per game out of him. He did spend the last two years playing with guys like Vermet and Domi and Doan and Reader. So yeah, playing with Couture is probably a step up in that scenario if he does get to play in the top six. But at the same time, I'm not sure that his ceiling is significantly higher than the 51 points that he was able to pick up last year. Ryan in the chat room here is saying that Bodker was showcased in Arizona, which, uh, yeah, it makes sense. I guess obviously they wanted to trade him so they gave him a top six role, but really, who else were they going to put in that position? But Ryan's saying, one of the better examples of a successful show pony. Who did Arizona, remind me again, who did they get? I know they got Tangay, but that couldn't have been the exciting return they had for the Michael Bodker trade. If you guys remember in the chat, maybe you could let me know. But I guess we'll see. And it's interesting. Definitely, it sounds like you're saying that Marlowe might not be ready for a bottom six role, or we'll have to see if the coach is willing to put him there or not. But I can't imagine this is good for Marlowe. I wonder if you even draft him next year, because this is also a guy who didn't have a great year last year. Like we were talking about the uh, Eric Stalls and the uh, David Backuses, but then you look at Marlowe, not too much better. He ended the season with 48 points in 82 games. Probably one of his worst seasons that he's had in his career. I'm just looking through now. Like He had 57 points the year before, which I remember we talked about going into the season as a slumping year, and we were wondering if he'd be able to bounce back from that. He definitely didn't. And now when he doesn't even seem to have a spot on the depth chart... I'd be very concerned about drafting Patrick Marlowe. Like, if you could get him in the last pick of your draft, Brian, would you draft Marlowe? Or, like, maybe to compare him to, like, a David Backus or something? I assume this time you're going to say that Backus is the obvious choice? I feel like Backus is probably guaranteed top six minutes. I don't know that I can say, say the same for Patrick Marlowe, whose shot counts have declined for three consecutive years. So has his scoring, down to 48 points last season. Maybe still good for like 20 goals, 20 assists. I'm not going to rule that out, but I'm also not going to expect him to be able to surpass 50 points. I feel like Bodker has just about as much. Honestly, it's whoever gets more time in the top six and more power play time in San Jose. That's the guy who's going to come out on top. But as we've realized over the last couple of years, that's a difficult thing to predict. 
Yeah, so hey, Brian, I'm going to go and talk about Steven Stamkos and the Tampa Bay Lightning for a second. Why don't you go turn your light on, because no one can see you right now. You go do that. I will mention also, actually, before I get to that, there we go. Now we can see you. That's nice. And he's already back, so it wasn't even that big of a deal. Okay, I wanted to mention quickly, Tomas Hurdle is someone we're saying bounced around a lot. He had a good year last year, 46.81 games, but that's actually very similar to what Marlowe did. So I don't know if we should get too certain yet that, like, Hurdle has for sure earned his spot in the top six and Marlowe's, you know, the one that has to fight. Like, obviously, Hurdle's and Marlowe are on different sides of their career, but no guarantee for Hurdle yet, though he was really good at the end of the year and he had a really good playoff. So I would actually draft Hurdle. I think that he's someone who I project for, like, 55, 60 points next year. I don't know if you think that's, like, crazy, Brian, but I feel like he did really well with the Joes. Like, why split them up? I don't know. Should I talk about Stamkos now? Yeah, go ahead and talk about Stamkos. I don't know why they'd split him up, aside from the fact that they always do. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so last week we talked about, or last episode, we talked about that crazy day where there was the Habs trade of Subban for Weber, and there was that trade where the Oilers traded Taylor Hall for Larson. But we, and we mentioned that at the same time, Stamco signed with the Lightning, which was very exciting because we didn't know where he would go. But then, you know, the fantasy excitement and the fantasy relevance of this wasn't too much because it's just, okay, he's still with Tampa. What do we really have to talk about? He'll be the same as he was before. I want to at least mention it, though. How does this affect people? And I think it's interesting. First of all, in terms of Stamkos, I'd imagine my take would be not great for his fantasy value. I'm sure it's good. Like, he, whatever. He likes it there. He's fine. I'm not saying he shouldn't have signed there. But the problem with him in Tampa Bay, which we've talked about a lot, is he doesn't seem to get to play with the best wingers on the team. Oftentimes, you see Kucherov with Palat and Johnson, as everyone knows. And every once in a while, they split them up. But, you know, Kucherov seems to be the best winger on Tampa Bay aside from maybe Stamkos when he plays on the wing. So, but I don't know, then Stamkos always ends up with sort of like the dregs, the Ryan Callahans and the Alex Killorns. By the way, Alex Killorns signed to a big contract. I want to get your take on that. So I would say Stamkos, in terms of his fantasy value going forward, if you have him in the Keeper League, I like him as a 70-point guy. I feel like I'm very confident he will be a 70-point guy next year and for most seasons moving forward. Only 64 points in 77 games last year. He had a bit of a slump, but he was really hot at the end, and I'm not too worried. But I don't know if he's going to be... that point per game guy if he can't get the quality linemates in Tampa though there is Druin Jonathan Druin who we finally saw what he can do in the playoffs and I wonder if he could be amazing with Stamkos and he gets an increase in his fantasy value now that Stamkos is going to be there as his winger most likely and also if this helps Stamkos maybe he could have Druin as his Martin St. Louis to help him get back to be a point per game player wouldn't that be nice? Something tells me that that's not going to happen. I don't know what it is. I feel like it's more likely that in Tampa, Andre Palat steps up to the top line with Steven Samkos, or maybe I should put in quotes, one of the top lines in Tampa, while Jonathan Duran maybe steps into a role with Tyler Johnson and Nikita Kucherov. Does that answer your question? Was there a question? <laughs> I guess you're saying, so you agree with me that you think that maybe he's we shouldn't see him as maybe a point-per-game guy, more as a 70-point guy? It's a tough one for me. I feel like Sam Goes isn't far off from being a point-per-game guy, but no, I wouldn't quite call him a point-per-game guy. He hasn't been for the last two years. I don't expect that he's going to be able to return to it. I don't know. It's a really tough thing. Sam Goes has been one of those mysteries that a lot of people have tried to figure out what happened to his goal scoring. I mean, he scored 60 back in 2011-2012, and... He's had several 90-point seasons, and then he got injured, and everybody said he lost a step, but we weren't sure if he really did, and there was analysis saying he did, and analysis saying he didn't. 
To be honest, his point total for me is up in the air. I consider him myself as like a 75-ish point guy. Last year he was on pace to not even hit 70. I think that's low. I think he's going to be better off this year. I think he's going to start taking more shots again. He took 50 fewer shots last year than he did the year before. That's a bit of a big deal. So I can count on, I think, mid-70s for Steven Stamkos, but I'm not going to go ahead and say the mid-80s. That would bring him a point-per-game pace, although I'd love to see it. Yeah, and then for Druin, I feel like we didn't want to comment during the playoffs when Druin had that amazing run. He had like 14 points in 17 games, and we didn't want to say what do we think about how this will affect him next year just because we didn't know if Stamkos was going to be there. Now that we know that Stamkos is going to be there and we assume Druin's going to get his rightful spot on the top line, can we finally give a projection for Druin? We have to decide where to draft this guy. Are we drafting him as a 50-point guy, 60? I'll bet you there's even going to be some people drafting him as a 70-point guy, which was his pace in the playoffs I'd be very curious to know where you think he lands and where you would draft him 60 points is not out of the question for Jonathan Duran I'm gonna put him in my 55 to 60 point range I feel like if anything he could be higher you look at what Nathan McKinnon's doing in Colorado I always try and associate those guys uh, because of their draft years and situations although of course Duran's has been a little more tenuous as he came up in Tampa Bay Although John Cooper, I don't think, is suddenly going to put him in a position to be a point-for-game guy. I feel like there's still some pride on the line somehow in that scenario. I feel like Duren could one day be a 70-plus point guy. I'm just not sure if that day is going to come next season. It's a bit of a wild card to me, to be honest. I'm really just pulling that out of thin air. I'm going to go. I'm going to draft him as a 55-60 point guy, but he's probably got a lot more upside than a lot of other guys you draft around the same time. Yeah, I think if you're saying you're going to draft him as a 55-60 to point guy, I don't think you're going to get him. I think there's going to be a lot of people really excited about drafting him more as a 65 point guy, and that's fine. You're going to let someone else take the risk, and we'll see if you're going to be regretting it later. Or I, I could see it going either way, but I, I would actually lean more to like closer to 65 than 55 personally. Maybe I'm just an optimist, but I really like that he's probably going to be in the top six. Like He seems like he should be there. He was on the top power play during the playoffs. Like How could you go from being on the top power play to not even being in the top six? That would be such a bummer. Though, I mean, the Lightning do have some other options. Like We've talked about the Killorns and the Callahans. There's also Vladislav Nemesnikov, who spent some time on the top line, so that's another person that could get up there, an up-and-coming star, but he doesn't have the same pedigree as Druin. We'll have to see. Just like always, we're going to probably be talking all throughout the season about who's in the top six and who's playing with Steven Stamkos on Tampa Bay. Brian, last week we talked about rolling the dice with that guy who signed with Montreal. Radulov? Yeah, Radulov. And some people are saying he could potentially, based on his KHL numbers, be like a 70-point guy. You said you wouldn't peg him for more than a 60-point guy. If you had to pick right now, who would you rather have between Druin and Radulov for next season? I'll take Druin. I trust Tampa Bay management just a touch more than I do the Montreal Canadiens. That's fair. Okay. So I've got one more signing that I think can be fantasy relevant. Someone who I think will be drafted next season. I wonder if anyone in the chat room can guess who it is before I bring it up. Or if maybe you're going to say I missed someone. But I think I've gone through all of them in these past couple of episodes. I'm not seeing the right guess just yet. So I'm going to say, Brian, how about David Perron being signed by the St. Louis Blues? This is a guy who had such a Jekyll and Hyde season last year. I think he could be a good underrated pick for next year. So he only had... 36 points overall last year, which is horrible. Like, not fantasy relevant. This is, like, just a lower-tier 
player that would be like on the bottom six of most teams. But he spent most of the year, or at least the start of the year in Pittsburgh, where he wasn't doing anything, and even with some decent opportunities. It was actually weird to see him play with guys like Malkin at various times, or even I think he got some time with Crosby, couldn't make anything happen. Finally, he got traded to Anaheim, and he had a really strong end to the year. He actually had uh, a 59-point pace when he joined Anaheim, which is very good. Definitely fantasy relevant. That's right around what we're talking about a lot of these guys this year. So I'm curious to know, Brian, what do you think this means for David Perron? He goes to St. Louis. It can't be worse than what happened in Pittsburgh, but I don't know if it can get better than what he had in Anaheim, where he was at times playing with Getzlaff and or Perry and getting solid power play time. In St. Louis, you know, you look at their depth chart, and I feel like on one hand, they've got Steen, and they've got Tarasenko, and they've got Schwartz, and if he could play with one of those guys, that would be pretty good, and maybe Fabry, but he has to crack the top six. Like, do we think that he can crack the top six and play with some of these star players and maybe get on the top power play like he was sometimes on Anaheim, or do you think he's just going to be sort of a middle-of-the-pack guy, don't draft him as more than like a 50-pointer? I think the concern with anybody in St. Louis right now is Ken Hitchcock behind the bench is acting like a wild card a lot of the times. And I don't know if a wild card is something you can act like, but I'm trying to say that we don't know what to expect from Ken Hitchcock because, you know, he likes to play Troy Brower ahead of Vladimir Tarasenko. I mean, Brower isn't in the picture anymore, so that could be a positive. That's one less tool for him to use or one less wrong tool for him to use instead of the right one. But I don't know where Perron fits in. I think, Elon, you you summed it up pretty well. It's just a kind of a crowded situation right now in St. Louis, especially if you look on the left side, you see Alexander Steen, Jaden Schwartz, and Robbie Fabry all there. And Perron, I think, can play both sides. And if he can move to the right side, the right side is not very deep or as deep as the left side. After Tarasenko, you've got guys like Berglund and someone you hope can take a step forward again. We thought maybe last year he might. Dimitri Yaskin. But Perron has been sort of in flux for the last couple years, moving between Edmonton, Pittsburgh, and Anaheim. And only one of those situations really worked for him in the last two years in Anaheim. And I think that's what he needs to succeed. I think he needs that top six role. And at this point, I wish I could project if he's going to have one in St. Louis or a consistent one, but I can't. I'm not there yet. Okay, well, the interesting thing is you mentioned a guy like Robbie Fabry, and, you know, if they're bo- if we're going to assume that's going to be Schwartz, Tarasenko, and a center, maybe Stastny or Lettera on the top line, then who would be on the second line if they decided to keep Fabry and Perron as their centers? Oh, then you have Steen. You're right, it is crowded on the left side. Someone's going to have to switch over. Maybe Perron switches over. Like you say, it would be nice if he could play in the top six, because I feel like their top six talent is really good. Then after that, you see a really big drop. And we've seen from in Pittsburgh, we can't expect Perron to get big numbers if he's not playing with good players and maybe sometimes even if he is playing with good players but he has the potential to be good I'd be very I guess he's the kind of guy who I would be watching very closely during training camp hopefully you have a draft that's after training camp has started see how he's being used and also in in general in St. Louis it's going to be very interesting you know with Bacchus gone there's a couple of guys like even Yuri Letera who really lost a lot of his fantasy relevance over the last couple of years after that awesome start a couple of years ago but you know now that they don't have Bacchus anymore like Latera should be in 
the top six, centering a line with some good players. I know we always like say it looks like a good situation for Laterra. Maybe he'll be able to do good, and then he sort of lets us down. But he had short runs last year when various players were injured that he was good. But I know overall nothing this special. We don't always say that about Laterra. We haven't said it, or at least I haven't said it about him for a while. Last year, he proved that he is not a fantasy-relevant player. He doesn't take enough shots. He doesn't do anything except be a passenger on some goals that happen to be scored while he's on the ice. Yeah, okay, maybe that short changes some of the goals he's created. He's had a few pretty passing plays along the way. But on the whole, he's not somebody who I'm picking up hoping to get me 50 points or more. And if you situate Perron this way amongst all St. Louis Blues, I'd probably have him just above or maybe a little bit more than just above Laterra. I'd much prefer Steen, Schwartz, Tarasenko, and then Stasny and Fabry even more so than David Perrin. And Stasny's the guy who, like, he let us down so much after coming from Colorado. Like, we really thought he'd have a lot more offense than he ended up producing. But he, like, with Bacchus gone, he's the number one center. He was even the number one center last year with Bacchus there. What can we expect from him? He had actually 49 points last year in 64 games, which isn't that bad when you think about it. When you've worked that out for an overseason point pace, I'm just doing that right now, and I'm seeing that that's a 62, 63-point pace. So he actually was pretty good. He might actually be a forgotten guy. Maybe in all of this stuff that's going on in St. Louis, maybe Paul Stasny's the big sleeper at the end of the day, where people are looking at him as not fantasy relevant and someone that you could grab really late in your draft. But really, if you're saying your Lori, <laughs> Yori Laterra isn't a threat to be taking a lot of offensive roles, then really there's no one else at center aside from Paul Stasny to get the top power play and play on a top line with great players. Like he's going to get Tarasenko or Steen or Schwartz, probably a couple of these guys. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And coming from Colorado, he had the kind of profile that you'd think Ken Hitchcock would have liked enough to play him a little more prolifically over the last couple seasons as a player who can put up points but also had a solid two-way game. Hopefully he can bring that out in St. Louis this year, continue to impress his coach. He went under the radar last year with his 49 points in 64 games. I don't think that was an outlier. I think he can do just about the same thing over a full season. The one thing you won't get from him, though, is a lot of shots on goal. Pretty much about two per game is all you can expect from him. So with that... That's all the players that I think were fantasy relevant. Brian, I assume you don't have any guys on the top, off the top of your head that you think that were signed during free agency that might be worth drafting. Probably not. Let me know if you think of someone. Let us let me know in the chat room. I'm going to jump quickly to Facebook to take a, a question there. If there are any, this is your last chance to ask a question. I see a question from Ryan here in the chat asking, will Kessel be more consistent from the get-go next year or will he only wake up in the last quarter? Well... We already talked about Kessel uh, during the playoffs, and we said that we think that he's really good, and he's probably not going to be as bad extra. That's my answer. I don't know, Brian, do you have an extra take on Phil Kessel? No, I think we covered him extensively, talking about how he did struggle in the first half of the season, the way that all the Penguins did, was able to turn it on. I think the one thing maybe you're a little concerned about, and will quickly become a narrative if he does struggle again in the first bit of this season is that hand thing that he's got going on. It looks like he's wearing, when he spent his day with the cup, it looks like he was wearing the gloves to hold the cup. And I thought that was really funny until I realized that it was like a bandage to help the healing of his hand injury that he's working through. So perhaps, I don't know, if he does struggle, at least he's got a scapegoat 
forward. It's the recovery from that hand, but overall, I don't think there's any reason not to expect second half Phil Kessel to keep rolling next year. Well, one could hope. Yeah, Ryan's saying here in the chat that he blames Kessel for being in the sixth tier of the Cupful going into next season because of his bad start and he wasn't able to recover. If you're in a keeper league and you have Kessel, I'd be pretty happy. I'm still going to be drafting him high. But we've talked so much about Pittsburgh over the last few weeks. I know, Ryan, you picked so many Penguins. But yeah, last chance to mention, sign up to be a patron. Because you want to be in the Cacuffo, like Ryan's saying, he's in the 6th tier. You could get in probably in the 7th or 8th tier. You'll climb up a couple of tiers per season. If you have any questions about the rules, we could send you a link to the rules document. We've got a really awesome league set up. We want to have all of the most intense fantasy hockey players in there. And if you're a listener of Keeping Carlson in the summertime, then you're probably an intense fan that should be participating in the Cacuffo. So... Check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Thanks to everyone who listened. If you like the show, give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. You could also throw us a five-star review on iTunes if you would be so kind. But with that, let us cue up the outro music. And Brian, how about you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and supported by our patrons, it was researched with help from Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Dauber Hockey's Frozen Pool, Hockey Database, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey, and Corsica Hockey as well. Yes, thank you to all of our great resources. And Brian, great job as always. Looking forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sand.